We've been waiting for you. Come on in. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and Dr. Erica Reamer for January 9th, 2024. Today, we welcome senior healthcare analyst Frank Cohen with an exclusive report on E&M visits. We get the latest coding news from Lori Johnson. Tiffany Ferguson covers the social determinants of health. Stanley Nockhamson has our regulatory report. Kim Powell is at the Tuesday News Desk, and Dr. Reamer presents her talkback segment. Now here's the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, the host of Talk 10 Tuesday, and a man who is way more grounded than a Boeing 737 MAX 9 jetliner, Chuck Buck. <laughs> Thanks for going, Anthony. Yeah, with also screws missing, too. Thank you again. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 581st live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. This is our first live broadcast for 2024. And good morning, Erica and Erica. Post Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, Chuck, and to all our listeners. Very, very good. Thanks, indeed. As you heard Clark Anthony announce, senior healthcare analyst Frank Cohen is here today. He's going to report on his study about the 2021 E&M code changes and how they have impacted the 2023 E&M code. What do you think about that? Well, I'm looking forward to seeing his analysis. Indeed. So, Erica, what's the topic for your uh, talk back today? Well, I'm going to be revisiting the OIG and uh, HCCs. Excellent topic, Eric. Thanks very much. We look forward to hearing your talk back. Folks, we have a lot of news to report, so we begin this morning with Tim Powell. Tim is at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. Hey, Chuck, and today I'm going to be talking about the Federal Independent Resolution, uh, the IDR process under the No Surprises Act, and the fees related to that. So the recent final rule issued by the Department of Health and Human Services, Labor, and the the Treasury has introduced significant changes to the fees associated with the Federal Independent Dispute Resolution, IDR, process under the No Surprises Act. This act, a part of the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021, aims to provide a resolution mechanism when disputes arrive over payment amounts for out-of-network items and services, including those provided by air ambulance. The need for these amendments stem from the Texas Medical Association versus the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services case, which vacated parts of the previous guidance for establishing the administrative fee for the uh, federal IDR process for disputes initiated in 2023. Consequently, the departments have shifted from annually published guidance to notice and comment rulemaking to set these fees. Central to this new rule is the administrative fee. As mandated by law, both parties in a dispute must pay this non-refundable fee calculated to cover the department's expenditures in managing the IDR process. The methodology for determining this fee is now based on the total number of administrative fees on the projected payments to certify the IDR entities, reflecting a move towards greater transparency and stability in response to public comments. The departments have set administrative fee at $115 per party for disputes initiated following the rule's effective date with annual reviews for potential adjustments. Additionally, the rule addresses the certified IDR entity fees. Entities either either certified or seeking certification must disclose their intended charges for payments determined 
determinations to the department, and these fees must align with the fixed ranges set by the department for both single and batch determinations. In response to the TMA IV opinion and order, the departments have established these ranges through rulemaking enhancing transparency. The finalized fees range from $200 to $840 for single determinations and $268 to $1,173 for batch determinations. For batch disputes exceeding 25 line items, the separate fee structure has been finalized. Moreover, the rule maintains the process for certified IDR entities to set their fees annually within the established ranges or to seek approval for fees outside these ranges. In a new provision, these entities can now request a mid-year fee update subject to the department's approval. In summary, this rule marks a significant shift in the federal IDR process under the NSA, and it introduces a more transparent and stable framework for establishing administrative and certified IDR entity fees, providing clarity and predictability for all entities involved in these disputes. So this development is crucial in the broader context of healthcare finance and regulation as it clearly impacts how out-of-network payments are resolved, ultimately affecting both providers and patients. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert, and he's also the national correspondent for ICD-10 Monitor. Now's the time for the Talk 10 Tuesday Coding Report with Lori Johnson. And good morning, Lori Johnson. Good morning, Chuck, and Happy New Year. Good morning, Erica, and Happy New Year to you, too, and to all of our listeners. While we are, were away on holiday break, CMS released the fiscal year 24 April update to the ICD-10 PCS codes. There are 41 new procedure codes in this release. The majority of the new codes can be found in the medical and surgical section, gastrointestinal and hepatobiliary body systems with percutaneous endoscopic approach and a qualifier of hand-assisted. Some examples include excision or resection of right or left large intestine percutaneous endoscopic hand-assisted, transfer of the omentum to various locations, open approach, excision or resection of liver, percutaneous endoscopic, hand-assisted. There are also new, new additions in the new technology section, including XW01329, which is introduction to quetinumab into subcutaneous tissue, percutaneous approach. This drug has a brand name of Talvi and is used for... Um, uh, a um, cancer. And XX2KX19 is monitoring of interstitial fluid volume, subepidermal moisture using elect- electrical biocapacitance external approach. The new files are available on the CMS website and are part of the definitions manual 41.1. Please remember that these new codes are not effective until April 1st, 2024. Take some time to become familiar with these codes and determine if you need to update your facility coding guidelines. And with that, Erica, back to you. Thanks, Lori. And I just got to say for anybody who's like me, who's sitting around going, what is a hand-assisted procedure? Hand-assisted laparoscopic surgery is somewhat different than that of laparoscopic assisted surgery. With HALS, a sleeve appliance is used to maintain pneumoperitoneum 
while the operator's hand is inserted through a small incision into the abdomen. How cool is that? Thank you, Lori. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior healthcare consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Are you a coding pro or are you just starting your career? MedLearn Publishing has something that's about to make your life a whole lot easier. It's the webcast, The Basics of Interventional Radiology Coding. This exclusive ICD-10 Monitor webcast provides a foundation for interventional radiology coding. It's an opportunity to get grounded in a broad range of coding basics. Terminology, vascular anatomy, modifiers, CCI fundamentals, and bundled and component coding rules for diagnostic and therapeutic vascular IR services. The webcast uses case studies to illustrate and pull all the elements together. Register for The Basics of Interventional Radiology Coding, now available at the ICD University Bookstore. It's The Basics of Interventional Radiology Coding on January 17th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Here now with the Talking Tuesday report on the social determinants of health is Tiffany Ferguson. Good morning, Tiffany Ferguson. Good morning, all, and happy new year. So for today's segment, I'd like to be focusing on a couple of highlights that we released that was released during the holiday break that I kind of held on to and wanted to share with you today because I thought it was pretty interesting. So one is more money to align SDOH data elements has come about. So the LOINC and health data standards by the Regan Streff, I apologize if I butcher that, foundation in partnership with the Gravity Project uh, was awarded $4 million, a $4 million grant to start working on initiatives to standardize documentation and data elements in our EMRs for SDOH collection. I thought that was interesting because we can see as with the release of all of the different requirements for SDOH and now that we're capturing it, everyone's kind of home growing this in their own EMR, even though they have similar EMRs across systems. And then, of course, you know, there's different vendors. So this grant is really focusing on aligning those elements, kind of getting together with those vendors to really talk about where are you putting that into your program so that way individual hospitals are really capturing that appropriately. Um, oh, yes. So LOINC. Thank you. L-O-I-N-C is an acronym and pronounces LOINC. <laughs> Next, let's talk about the Medicaid unwinding, which was a big issue, but it's creating some ripple effects right now. So as you remember, last year, we've talked about the Medicaid unwinding, which is the state Medicaid plans that had to fall back in compliance with the removal of federal protections from the the pandemic. This has been a bit of a struggle, understandably so, with the gap in years now trying to track down and re-enroll and qualify adults and children who are Medicaid eligible. So over the over the break, CMS made a public acknowledgments commending states um, who followed auto renewal practices and condoned 10 states who elected not to expand Medicaid coverage. Uh, Originally, it was private. They didn't mention those states. And now it's very public, uh, leading to that because of the increased disenrollment. So those 10 states linked in my article, you can see more details, have a combined rate of disenrolling children more than the rest of the country's enrollment rate. Uh, The highest category of disenrollment was 19-year-olds who accounted for 27.6% across the non-Medicaid expansion states. So federally, CMS is concerned because there's approximately a 35 million child coverage decline 
between pre-pandemic and 2023 Medicaid chip insured lives. Uh, Senator Becerra did issue letters who which are also publicly available to nine states who had the highest disenrollment rates by numbers and percentage. Uh, Becerra provided recommendations to combat their declining rates and encourage enrollment and healthcare coverage, such as decreasing call times and eliminating burdens and processes for re-enrollment. The letters also called again for applicable states to expand their Medicaid coverage and remove barriers for CHIP, such as CHIP enrollment fees and premiums. Uh, as we step into your, to the new year, I anticipate we're going to continue to see a mix of things coming out on social needs and healthcare, and how we can that they continue to ma- demand our attention in the workforce. Uh, the initiative to standardize SDOH data collection is really a positive stride towards greater documentation alignment. Uh, however, you can see here from the Medicaid demonstration that that continues to be a bit of a hurdle as states are trying to figure this all out and re-enrollment still uh, a couple years later. Back to you, Erica. Thanks, Tiffany. That was Tiffany Ferguson. Tiffany is CEO for Phoenix Medical Management. Chuck? Thank you, Erica. And folks, be sure to read Tiffany Ferguson's excellent article. It's in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor. Here now to report the latest news coming out of Washington is our good friend Stanley Knoxon. Good morning, Stanley. Stanley, there's a lot of stuff going on. What do we really need to know today? At the end of 2023, the department issued a final rule to advance health IT interoperability and algorithm transparency. This rule, which is being formally published in the Federal Register today, actually, updates the EHR certification requirements in several ways. These include transparency requirements for artificial intelligence and other predictive algorithms that are part of the certified health IT to promote responsible AI and make it possible for clinical users to access a consistent baseline set of information about the algorithms that they use to support their decision-making and to assess these algorithms for fairness, appropriateness, validity, effectiveness, and safety. The now requirement is to use the U.S. CDI Uh, version three as the new baseline standard within the ONC Health IT Certification Program as of January 1st, 2026. This new version focuses on advancing more accurate and complete patient characteristics data that will help promote equity, reduce disparities, and support public health data interoperability. The new rule encourages secure, efficient, standards-based exchange of electronic health information under the Trusted Exchange Framework and Common Agreement, or TEFCA, the new national system for electronic data interchange. As of the beginning of this year, the new Medicare physician fee schedule rules take effect. These changes include overall payment rates being reduced by 1.25% in this calendar year compared to last year. CMS is also finalizing significant increases in payment from primary care and other kinds of direct patient care. Medicare will be paying practitioners when training caregivers to support patients with certain diseases or illnesses, such as dementia, in carrying out a treatment plan. The rule finalizes coding and payment changes to pay separately for community health integration, social determinants of health, risk assessment, and principal illness navigation services to account for the resources when clinicians involve certain types of healthcare support staff such as community health workers, care navigators, and peer support specialists in furnishing medically necessary care. 
The rule finalizes coding and payment for social determinations of health risk assessment to recognize when practitioners spend time and resources assessing SDOH that may impact their ability to treat the patient. And also, it finalizes implementation of a separate add-on payment for Healthcare Common Procedure Coding System Code G2211. This add-on code will better recognize the resource costs associated with evaluation and management visits for primary care and longitudinal care. Now, anticipating what's going on this year, we I expect to see rules for improving interoperability and data exchange among providers, plans, and especially patients, some rules on prior authorization to streamline the process, and perhaps some HIPAA updates on new claims attachments rules, and even a proposed new version of the X-12 standard. Stay tuned. Erica, back to you. Thanks, Stanley. That was Stanley Nockamson. Stanley is the founder of Nockamson Advisors, LLC. Senior healthcare analyst Frank Cohen joins us. I was going to report on his exclusive study of how the 2021 EM changes have impacted EM coding for 2023. Good morning, Frank. Welcome to Talk 10 Tuesday. Good morning, Chuck. Thank you, and a happy new year. So, in 2021, CMS released, I guess, probably the most comprehensive set of changes to EM codes uh, for office visits then since, well, probably 1997. And in 2023, they then extended those changes to most of the other EM uh, visit categories, including hospital, domiciliary care, emergency room services, and, and some others. So, to better understand the impact on both utilization and the audit results, I conducted a study in December of 2023, um, and to add some value, I compared this to the 2021 study we conducted back in December of that year as well, and I used 2022 data. So I, I took 2022 data, looked at the 2021 changes, and then we looked at the data so far up through November of 2023 in order to see what those uh, what that comparisons look like. Now, the data are from our users group, just, just so people understand that. Now, for 2022, my universe consisted of about four and a half million claims. For 2023, it was about 5.2 million claims. Initial hospital visits showed a shift to the middle level code. So there was a shift up from the bottom, down from the top. Subsequent hospital visits, on the other hand, reported a utilization shift from the two higher level codes to the lowest level code. So we saw a decrease in the utilization distribution uh, within that category. Uh, in fact, we saw a 12.2% decrease in the use of the 99233, the highest level code. And that was a bit surprising to me and to our auditors as well, as well based on the new guidelines. But more dramatic were the changes in utilization uh, distribution for the emergency department codes. And here we saw a very significant shift from the 99282 and the 283s to the 284. And remember, we got rid of the 281. We all thought, well, it's going to show up in the 99282 code. Didn't happen this time. And the apparent recipient of these shifts was that 99284, which had an increase of about 25% in that distribution shift. But the proof, as they say, is in the pudding. In 2022, the audited error rate for the subsequent hospital visits, right, as a category, was around 26%. In 2023, it only went down to 22%. Not a big change in that. And overcoding remained the primary reason for those errors. Now, for initial hospital visits, the changes were a bit more dramatic. We saw a change in the error rate 
that went from 32% in 2022 to 22% in 2023. And that, by the way, is more in line with the results of the CERT study as well. But the biggest change was with emergency department services, where we saw the error rate go from 20% to only 7%. My auditors tell me that this was due to simplification of the coding guidelines. So you might ask, why is this guy talking about E&M codes on an ICD-10 broadcast? And the reason is because of the increased use of AI in determining medical necessity. Now, AI and machine learning algorithms are becoming more common for looking at the relationship between diagnosis codes and CPT codes to determine whether the service meets their criteria for medical necessity. And the there I'm referring to here are the payers. This link analysis is not new, but improvements in technology are and all but guarantee more medical necessity denials, which increases compliance risk and decreases the bottom line. So conducting regular internal audits is critical to best understand and mitigate our financial and compliance risks. In the immortal words of Adam Smith, science is the great antidote to poison of enthusiasm and superstition. So hopefully Chuck practices can use this study to help them benchmark and better understand their own audit results. And that is the world according to Frank. Thanks, Frank. I think that it's pretty clear that the nine the, the uh, 99214 um, increased because medical management is so pervasive. Um, that was senior healthcare consultant Frank Cohn. Frank is the founder of the Frank Cohn Group. What do you do when CMS unloads barrels and barrels of new codes into your lap like fallen leaves? How do you stay on top of your game as a coding genius? You subscribe to the ICD-10 Monitor Coding Portal. For an unbelievably low subscription price of $35, you have access to the superstars of coding. Lori Ann Bryant, Dr. Erica Reamer, and Lori Johnson. You also have access to more than 40 educational webcasts Plus, you'll earn CEUs to maintain your credentials. The retail value, more than $5,960. But for a limited time, your subscription is only $35 per webcast, a savings of 75%. Subscribe today to the ICD-10 Monitor Coding Portal. Here now with a very popular segment of Talk to Enthusiasts called Talk Back. And it features our own Dr. Eric Reamer. Dr. Reamer, it is all yours. Thank you, Chuck. At the end of November, the Office of Inspector General released a report on a Medicare uh, Advantage compliance audit. The results of this report were similar to previous OIG's review of Geisinger Health and Excellus health plans. I really think it's time that we should learn from lessons from these audits. The conditions which appeared in this audit were identified by data mining and discussions with medical professionals. The issue was roughly the same for each. A diagnosis was claimed, and they found no evidence of treatment or continuity. Here are the conditions. Acute stroke. Um, There must be a corresponding inpatient or outpatient hospital claim within the service year. Patients do not have chronic strokes. They experience sequelae from a previous stroke, and the coding can distinguish. Acute myocardial infarction, if an acute MI code isn't found on an inpatient claim within 60 days, then the OIG questioned whether a less serious condition wouldn't be more appropriate, like angina pectoris, myocardial injury, or some other ischemic heart disease. 
major depressive disorder, if the condition were captured on only a single claim during the service year, but no antidepressant medication was dispensed, the OIG felt the diagnosis might be considered unsupported. Embolism, it was suspicious if there was only one claim and no anticoagulation medication ordered. Vascular claudication, these enrollees had the diagnosis found on only one claim, but had not had one of the diagnoses that indicated, indicated vascular claudication during the preceding two years. And furthermore, we're taking a medication usually associated with neurogenic claudication. And then lung, breast, colon, and prostate cancers. If there was an active cancer diagnosis on only one claim, but there was no surgery, radiation, or chemotherapy administered within six months prior to or subsequent to the diagnosis, the OIG concluded that a history of cancer code should have been used instead. So here are the take-home points to me. Diagnoses, which are chronic, should be chronic. Having a single documentation of a chronic condition calls into question whether it is really present. Having a chronic condition, which has a standard of care medical treatment, should result in that treatment being prescribed unless there are contraindications or extenuating circumstances, and those should be documented. One of the cancers was denied because only, quote, lung mass, close quote, was documented. This demonstrates the need for post-discharge documentation of pathology diagnoses. There was also a lung metastasis, which was submitted as a primary malignancy. The most common issue regarding cancers was not transitioning to history of, and instead being submitted as active current conditions. There are multiple prongs to the approach to this problem. The first is educating your providers on correct documentation and coding. They need to document conditions accurately and precisely. They need to choose the correct code, which is supported by the documentation. When diagnoses evolve to history of, the documentation should follow suit. When a diagnosis is made, medically appropriate treatment should be initiated unless there are extenuating circumstances preventing that course of action and that should be explicitly recorded in the chart. Your organization could, should consider setting up a technology solution to ensure that any of the high-risk target conditions have evidence of treatment or explain why treatment is not being undertaken. An electronic medical record for a programmed set of diagnoses, a reconciliation of diagnoses and administration of medication, a second-level review by CDI for high-risk diagnoses, it should be routine practice that when a chronic diagnosis is made, it is documented repeatedly during a service year whenever it is being addressed. In theory, noting a diagnosis once is sufficient. In practice, auditors question chronic diagnoses if they are only mentioned once and never again. If your facility has not taken steps to ensure that HCC diagnoses are properly validated, you are just asking to be the next victim in the OIG's headlights. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of recoupment. And with that, Chuck, back to you. Thanks, Erica, very much. Excellent topic for your talk back. And folks, that is going to be a wrap for this live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. And I want to thank our panelists today, 
Lori Johnson, Tim Powell, Stanley Knox, and Tiffany Ferguson, Frank Cohn, reported our lead story, and a very special thank you to my dear friend, Dr. Eric Reamer, for co-hosting. And a programming note, there's not going to be a Tech and Tuesday broadcast next Tuesday, but we're going to be right back here Tuesday, January 23rd. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for ICD-10 Monitor and Tech and Tuesday. Thank you again, everybody. Have a great week. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.